In December of 1968, Maurice Hindle interviewed John and Yoko. In it, John talked about his belief in telepathy. I'll play the clip without comment. What do you think about language? <clears throat> I think it's a, a bit crummy, you know. It's, it is a, a drag form of communication, really. And uh, we'll, 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 get, we'll get telepathy, you know. I believe that. You believe that? Yeah, sure, sure. Sure as anything, I believe that. It's too... Because now we need it so much. Just for me to communicate with that guy. Now, he's written a letter to a paper to tell me, to tell me, and I'm talking to a tape for you that might, he might ever see. Now, where's that, you know? But if he was really wanting to communicate with me, you know, even to come and see me, to talk, it's hard, you know. What I'm saying to you, you're translating it all the time, even though it's English. Mm-hmm into what you think I'm saying, you know. And I'm only saying what I'm trying to say from way back there, which is coming out in the limited amount of vocabulary I have anyway, and the way I'm trying to describe all that or all this, you know, it's nowhere, so. But what we, what we say as well is sort of limited by our upbringing. I mean, you know, what one's allowed to say. Do you, have you escaped from this, you know, uh, inhibitions? Sort of not no, saying I, what you want to say. Uh, I don't know. It's hard to judge myself, you know. But do you always speak your mind? Uh, to a degree, yeah. yeah. I mean, that's why I was thrown out of college. That's why I was always getting expelled or and all that. I've been me all the time. That's him, you know. I've been Lennon all down the line. So, but I mean, I'm not saying I've been compromised, you know, but I've been me all down the line. You know, like there's there are you know there's there's people everywhere of the same mind, and it's just even amongst ourselves we can't communicate which is the hard bit, you know, yeah. amongst the people that sort of really agree. Just because of words? Yeah. Just because of words and your upbringing and attitude and, yeah, and how you express it. Well, it's, it's, it's just something, you've got to find a, a, a mutual sort of language Unless to express really, yourself, you know. And my language is the... Unless you want. No, it is. I mean, I wasn't involved last year, but I was communicating quite well with people. Not as well as, or maybe not as powerfully, because now there's two of us doing that, whatever it is, setting out the vibration or whatever. But before that, it was it was me and or me and George or like that, whatever it was. We weren't in love, but you know, there's enough in you to to shove it out. It is just that bit. If you if somebody comes in a room and he's uptight and that. You can make the whole room uptight. Yeah. But if you're all sitting there uptight and some guy, the, 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 the laugh guy comes in, he can just change it all, just without saying or doing anything. You know? And that's what I mean about changing the world, by changing their heads and setting up vibrations, hippie, inverted commas, love talk, you know. So it works on that basis. The Beatles were very much of their time. I will present as much context for their statements as I can, but there will be language and views expressed that may not fit with modern sensitivities. But this is 1969. Until they invent the time machine, these words remain unchangeable. Good morning. Nine, eight, seven, this is roll 29. 29. Three, two, one. Don't operate under these conditions, boy. You know, we're coming out. It's like, it's like that we're like, we're striking. That's what it is. It's like a strike. And that's what we're going through now, really. I've got like my quota of tunes for the next 
content with the Beatles. Hello, and welcome to Winter of Discontent, the podcast that takes a deep dive into the recordings of the Beatles sessions for the Get Back Project. My name is Nick. Join me now as we embark on this epic journey together. Episode 36 Welcome back to January 7th, 1969. We're on the home stretch now. This is the season finale. After this, you'll have 36 episodes of bingeable material to listen to, covering the first four days of the Get Back project. A very big thank you to those WAD fans who bought me a coffee last episode. So, to Post Punk Pete, Bruce, Andre, and the guys at A Beatles Big Sort podcast, thank you so much. Your contributions will all go into research materials for the series. Brilliant stuff. In a moment, we'll rejoin the Beatles, trying out material from John to rehearse. But first, a recommendation. A book this time. Beatles 66, The Revolutionary Year by Steve Turner. An extraordinary book about an extraordinary year. The Beatles have their first prolonged break in their career and use it to change themselves and the world. What a contrast to where we are here in 1969. I'll do the summary now for those who don't want to skip forward through this bit. The tape starts with the Beatles changing instruments after their rehearsal of Maxwell's Silver Hammer. Kling can be heard asking sound recordist Peter Sutton if he wants him to knock these out. We presume it's a reference to the microphones on the now discarded instruments. The sound we're hearing on the Nagra tapes now is largely being fed via Glynn's mixing console, enabling us to hear what his missing mono recordings of the rehearsals would have sounded like. We'll probably discuss this in a later episode. You can hear Michael discussing the production idea of a sing-along to Maxwell's Silverhammer, which is the first time the Beatles have suggested anything practical for the presentation of the live show. As he's waiting, John sings the refrain from the newly written Get Back. It would probably, in hindsight, have been a better idea to try and finish this off. Meanwhile, someone is adjusting his mic, which distracts him. John then begins playing through a version of a shot of rhythm and blues, accompanied by Ringo as the rest of his bandmates get set up. Tea is being served, but John only wants milk. He then plays a little bit of another rock and roll favourite, Elvis's Baby I Don't Care. George picks up on this, but as soon as he begins singing along, John starts the intro to Across the Universe. He immediately falls foul of his own memory, managing to forget even the opening line. John's demeanour throughout this section of the rehearsals today is very similar to the initial rehearsals for Don't Let Me Down. He seems to lack faith in his own material and seems almost embarrassed to present his songs. Lacking ideas, he is supported mostly by George rather than Paul. There seems to be an agreement between the band members after wresting the producer's role from George Martin that whoever writes the song is responsible for leading rehearsals. This is why there is such a different energy to John's rehearsal sessions than to Paul's. Paul knows what he wants exactly. John needs a collaborator, but Paul sits himself out during these John-led rehearsals, really causing him to flounder. I'm not sure what Paul hopes to achieve by this, but he can be heard to berate John for not taking control on at least two occasions so far. 
After George reminds them of the opening line, they play through a version of the song with a similar arrangement to their 1968 recording. Johnny's even uncertain about his own guitar intro at this point. In the absence of the lyrics, which he is still waiting to arrive, he struggles to remember the structure of the song. George seems to know the arrangement better than John at this point and mentions that Jackie Lomax has a copy of the lyrics. Presumably Jackie intended to cover the song. Glenn interrupts via a talkback system that's been installed speaking from his recording booth. He asks Paul to scratch his microphone. John now sounds disheartened because the song is slow. George reassures him that a concert of slower material might actually start a trend. In an attempt to explain his lack of new material, John tells George that he feels too tired by the time he gets home. Now, fatigue can be a symptom of depression, as can a poor memory. But then it's difficult and not very wise to try and diagnose John's mental health at this distance. Things, however, are not quite right with John at the moment. John wavers on continuing across the universe or finishing off Give Me Some Truth with Paul. But again, thinks the song isn't fast enough. Paul agrees that slower songs dampen the mood of the rehearsal. Eric Brown arrives with the Across the Universe lyrics. I still have no information on this man. Was he related to Peter Brown? His upper class accent is not dissimilar to the Apple MD. Or is it actually Peter Brown and Paul was only joking calling him Eric? If you know, get in touch via the usual channels. John can be heard taping his lyrics to the front of the mic, which he doesn't seem to realise will muffle the sound. George discusses with John about the 1968 recording of Across the Universe and all the bits that he likes about it. John thinks it could be improved. This leads Paul to ask if it ever got on Wildlife, a reference to the charity album as yet unreleased, No One's Gonna Change Our World which John has donated the 1968 recording to. After cutting the tape, we join the band midway through a full band performance that has potential. Glyn interrupts this, however, to ask John via Paul to remove his lyric sheet off of his microphone. Glyn and Mal try to find John a music stand instead. While he waits, John plays the song through super fast. George comments that he likes the slow pace, however. John agrees, noting that it's difficult to fit the words in, even at a slower pace. John asks Michael if they have a record player on the set, as he appears to have an acetate of the song that he would like to hear. He asks Ringo if he remembers what he played on the record. Ringo demonstrates that he does. John, on reflection, thinks they'll have to develop the pattern more for the live show. Ringo makes suggestions for drum parts, something he didn't do either for Paul or for George. Paul is distracted by Glyn. George offers to play organ, though his ability on the instrument is limited. Another cut in the tape, and the next thing we hear is another performance, this time with regular rock drums playing a backbeat. Paul is now involved in this performance. George on organ is barely audible, but Glyn is working on it. After the performance, Paul makes suggestions for the backing vocal. John then asks George to go back to guitar, not exactly bowled over by his organ playing. John then attempts to play the organ part himself and sing, but he gives up when he finds it too hard. John then tries different approaches to playing the song on guitar. The first involves slapping the strings, the second involves finger-picking in the style Donovan taught him in India. George and Ringo have wandered off for more tea and a break, and John and Paul try a few other approaches, but they lack inspiration. 
Eric Brown reappears to announce that Yellow Submarine has won the New York Critics Award. Both John and Paul are unimpressed. Losing confidence, John first tries to run through a case of the blues before dropping that in favour of Give Me Some Truth. Both songs are unfinished. He suggests he and Paul finish the latter song. Paul doesn't comment. Again, John quickly gives up on this song too. They run through Across the Universe again, part of which appears in both the Get Back and the Let It Be documentaries. John asks for a drone sound from George, who tries to oblige by using the wah-wah pedal again. Liking the wah-wah sound on this song, John suggests that George play the intro to the song and then proceeds to teach it to him. Paul reads the set list on his bass out loud into the mic. George starts another run through of Across the Universe, but the tempo is way too slow and it quickly stops. Paul only half mockingly berates John to take control of the rehearsal as things are falling apart. As a response, John will break into another stage favourite from their last tour, and this is where we rejoin them. In response to Paul, John breaks into Chuck Berry's rock and roll music. The rest of the Beatles fall in behind him. The feed changes. Glyn wants to capture this. Unfortunately, this audio is quite distorted, which I believe is why in the documentary, Peter Jackson has put the sound of screaming over the top. This has far more energy than anything else John has tried today. You like that one, says John, possibly to Yoko. Then he says, much better. Probably Chuck Berry's most widely covered as well as his most enduring composition, rock and roll music was written in 1957. It was recorded for the Chess label in Chicago that May and produced by Leonard Chess and his brother Phil. The backing band for the session was effectively the Chess house band of Fred Blow on drums, blues legend Woody Dixon on bass, Lafayette Leak on piano and Berry himself on guitar. Berry had been brought to the attention of the Chess Brothers by Muddy Waters. Leonard Chess was taken with Berry's interpretation of the Bob Wills country fiddle tune Ida Red. Berry then adapted the song into his own Maybelline, and Chess had its first million seller on its hands. Rock and Roll Music, when released in September 1957, reached number 8 in the Billboard Hot 100, one of the many hits Berry would have with the label. The Beatles had been playing their arrangement of the song from their 1960 Hamburg performances onwards and featured it on their 1964 radio show Pop Goes the Beatles. The song was chosen to be recorded for EMI as part of the sessions for their Beatles for Sale album, intended no doubt to be a high-energy rocker in the vein of Twist and Shout and Money That's What I Want. By comparison with Berry's literally low-key rendition, the Beatles version, recorded on the 18th of October 1964, featured a dynamic vocal from John Lennon in a higher key and faster tempo. It was recorded live with no overdubs in one take, according to Mark Lewison. There is some debate about who is playing piano. The Beatles for sale liner notes state that Paul and John joined George Martin on the same piano, a version of events that seems to be backed up by Paul. 
This is an old Chuck Berry thing which we used to do at the cavern, and we've tried for that old type clip down in the valley echo on it. There's some piano going too, George Martin, John and I on the keyboard, all at once. It's possible that the piano was an overdub and John and Paul sat either side of Martin, one playing bass notes, the other adding the high-pitched embellishments and glissandos, but there's nothing on the record that couldn't have been played by one player. As an indication of the pressure the Beatles were under to fit in recording sessions between engagements in this the busiest year of their careers, the following songs were also recorded during the same nine-hour session. Kansas City, Hey Hey Hey, Mr Moonlight, I Feel Fine, I'll Follow the Sun, Everybody's Trying to Be My Baby and Words of Love. The BBC version of the song was recorded live at the Aeolian Hall in London on the 25th of November that year, where they also recorded a live version of Kansas City, Hey Hey Hey, and some humorous banter with host Brian Matthew. During the Beatles' 1966 tour, rock and roll music became the opening number of their 30-minute set. Cut of several verses, the song served as a replacement for Twist and Shout. The 1966 tour is legendary for how disaster-prone it became. What is notable for the Beatles' setlist at that time is how little of it is based around their recent album releases. In our modern era where artists can tour a new album for two years, here the Beatles play no songs from their just-released Revolver. Two songs from Rubber Soul plus Day Tripper, a song from Help, but no less than four songs from the Beatles for sale sessions, which includes the single I Feel Fine, backed with She's a Woman. The 1964 material suited their live setup, two guitars, bass and drums, more than their later, more sophisticated recordings. Beatles for Sale itself is often seen as a much maligned, weakest album in their canon, but it served a crucial role in augmenting their live repertoire for the remainder of their touring years. At the time of its release, the Beatles, who were often candid about their own shortcomings, appeared to be very satisfied with Beatles for Sale. Paul commented at the time that it was basically our stage show with some new songs and also we got more free to get into ourselves rather than we must please girls and make money. John echoed his sentiment. We're really pleased with the new LP. Paul again. We like them all. If there was something we weren't keen on after we recorded it, we would scrap it and do something else. We think there are some interesting sounds on the LP. There was of course no little relief from the band in completing the LP in time for the Christmas market. John complained in an interview before a live appearance in Hull, after which they would rush back to London for the marathon I Feel Fine session, that the need for new songs was becoming a hell of a problem. He later stated, There was a lousy period where we didn't seem to have any material for the LP and didn't have a single. Now we're clear of things and they're done. It's out. It's a bit of a relief. The material recorded for Beatles for Sale did show a progression from the previous three Beatles albums and singles. Eight Days a Week became the first pop record to fade in at the beginning. I Feel Fine pioneered the use of guitar feedback in pop music. Ringo played timpani in Every Little Thing and a packing case on Words of Love. There was even a version of the B-side She's a Woman that turned into a seven minute freakout before the term was even coined. The mood of the material was darker and more introspective, but the Beatles themselves saw that as a sign of maturity. As George put it, Our records were progressing. By this time we'd had loads of hits and were becoming more relaxed with ourselves and more comfortable with the studio. Add to this the already changing role of George Martin as producer, whereby he became more open to indulging their musical ideas. 
Author Peter Doggett said of this period, It coincided with Lennon McCartney being fated by London society. Their social milieu in 1964 represented a new territory for pop and a challenge to the British class delineation as the Beatles introduced arty middle-class sensibility into pop music. The biggest influence on the sound and style of Beatles for Sale was the month-long American tour that broke up the recording sessions. As Neil Aspinall commented on the sessions. No band today would come off a long US tour at the end of September, go into the studio, start a new album, still writing songs, then go on a UK tour, finish the album in five weeks, still touring. Although sessions began on the 11th of August, the majority of recording took place after the 29th of September, much of it done during days off from the UK tour, as Neil points out. 1964 was as I've said, by far the Beatles' busiest year, with the first US visit, filming for A Hard Day's Night, tours of Denmark, the Netherlands, Hong Kong, Australia, New Zealand, radio and TV promotions, a tour of Sweden, two albums, three singles and an EP, then the summer US tour, and on top of that, John Lennon published his first book. The US tour exposed the Beatles to more contemporary American music, especially country and folk. As John said, you could call our new one a Beatles country and western album. It was also the tour where the Beatles finally met John and George's new hero, Bob Dylan, and where Dylan infamously introduced them to marijuana. There's no doubt that both Dylan and the drug had a profound effect on the music the Beatles were producing. For his part, Dylan saw the Beatles as pointing the direction music had to go. By now, John and Paul were rarely writing together, and Lennon dominated, as he had done on the soundtrack to A Hard Day's Night. Paul had yet to hit his stride as a writer, but John seemed at this point to thrive under pressure. George Martin commented, They were rather war-weary during Beatles for Sale. One must remember they'd been battered like mad throughout 1964 and much of 1963. Success is wonderful, but very tiring. Tiring, but still full of youthful energy and excitement, the Beatles rose to the occasion. That was 1964. By 1969, John in particular seemed unable to summon up that same inspiration. In 1964, John could comment that Dick James had told him no reply was the first complete song you've written where it resolves itself. In 1969, he was bringing in fragments of song ideas and relying on his bandmates to assemble them into some structure. In 1969, John could return home from a day's rehearsal and feel too tired to be creative. But in 1964, John and Paul could use a rest day in Atlantic City to write two songs for the work in progress, Every Little Thing and What You're Doing. Despite being considered a low point in their run of albums thus far, Beatles for Sale remains an important work representing a period of transition from the upbeat, lightweight fun of A Hard Day's Night to the maturity of Rubber Soul. John then starts the riff to Lucille. Once again, the Beatles join in and Paul takes the lead. Glyn takes the opportunity to fiddle with the vocal levels.
Lucille was composed in 1956 by Little Richard and Albert Collins, not the blues musician of the same name. In 1957, it was released on Specialty Records. Initial pressings credit only Collins' name as sole writer, which may be more accurate. Subsequently, Richard bought half the song's rights while Collins was serving time in the Louisiana State Penitentiary. Richard's memory of the song's composition is predictably vague. I don't know what inspired me to write it. It may have been the rhythm. The B-side of the single is Send Me Some Lovin', which John has already performed during these sessions. Once again, utilising the eighth note beat of drummer Charles Connor, although session drummer Earl Palmer played on the recording, it marks the beginning of the transition from 50s rock and roll to 60s rock with all the instruments in a heavier lower register playing the signature riff. George plays the intro to Across the Universe. Another run-through starts. play some experimental bass and sing some experimental harmonies throughout. The song almost breaks down in the third verse. After asking for less repeats of Nothing's Gonna Change My World, he then forgets and sings it too many times. This final section of this performance appears in the Let It Be film. John leads the band into another oldie, Gone, Gone, Gone. Gone 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 was recorded in 1955 by Carl Perkins. George Harrison, as we know, was the band's greatest Perkins aficionado and developed much of his early playing style from studying Perkins records. The Beatles recorded three songs by the artist in 1964. Matchbox, Honey Don't, both sung by Ringo, and Everybody's Trying to Be My Baby, sung by George himself. Gone 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 is probably most notable for the slightly more risque alternative version that's now readily available that starts with the line There must be jelly because jam don't shake like that. Paul reads the label off of his mic. John offers Dig a Pony for rehearsal. Paul seems to know this. Dig a 
and apart from the bass line, uh, the rest of the Beatles have some knowledge of the chords and the rhythm, so they may have rehearsed this before. Once again, John becomes quickly disheartened. This performance is seen in the Let It Be film. Paul suggests they run through one after 9.09. This lacks the spontaneity of the performance on the third. Tape cuts. Okay, 128, take one. Roll. This is roll 66. This is roll 66, a camera. John still struggles to remember what to play during the solo. Mal has joined in on Anvil. John leads the band into a slow rendition of the song which ends up having elements of the 1963 George wants to rehearse it again. Paul thinks they shouldn't over-rehearse the song and lets out an anguished cry. In response to this, the band plays some dramatic accompaniment before John leads the band into a brief version of Ray Charles's What Do I Say? <laughs> Thank you. 
And for those that doubt that Ringo played the drums on I Feel Fine, here's that same pattern live and in the moment. This quickly breaks down and George leads them into another performance of One After 909. Immediately after this, John leads the band into an improvised jam. The riff based on another of his Watch Your Step inspired riffs, which he'd used on songs like I Feel Fine and Day Tripper. It's also a little reminiscent of the guitar part for Come Together. sings a little snippet of Don't Let Me Down and John is amazed at Paul's apparent telepathy. George, you're not going to do wiring on every number, are you? Clearly tiring of the wire effect. John's view is that the effect gives them a false sense of security, meaning, I presume, that the effect is being used in place of a properly thought-out guitar part. George demonstrates the sound caused by having the pedal in a fixed position. The most famous example of this effect that I can think of is the intro to the Dire Straits song Money for Nothing. Although Carlos Santana also uses this as part of his signature sound. George, then Paul quickly run through their parts. George asks Mal if he remembers how the intro went. Paul suggests leaving it out for now. Imagine how much use a recording would have been. 
Ringo, of course, is spot on with his part. And once again, John forgets the third verse, a recurring problem. As John and Paul discuss how they played the ending, George has switched to a tremolo effect on his guitar. Paul is satisfied with the progress of this song even though much of what George played yesterday is missing. using Ringo's drum pattern to develop his bass line, which he can do while singing. calls for another rehearsal quite pleased that there isn't much left to do they discuss the counting john thinks it needs a beat to remind him when to come in this will eventually happen of course but not now george still unsure of how to play the intro cuts this is presumably the same performance 
This is A camera roll 67, slate 129 continued. Paul wants to practice the harmonising. They really should practice that third verse more instead. is halfway to finding the guitar and bass part for the middle section. At this point John plays a solo to finish the song off. Stabs on the guitar in the middle section. You know it's gonna last. Paul sings his phrases on the bass, and these will remain pretty much the same from now on. John now sees a similarity to an early song George sang, Devil in Her Heart, though he states that it was on their first album, Please Please Me. It was in fact on their second, with the Beatles, but we'll let him off. He only made the record. John then attempts to play a version, although he doesn't remember the words, and it's in the wrong key.
Devil in His Heart was released in 1961 by the Donnays, an R&B girl group from Hamtramck, Michigan, on the Correct Tone label. It was re-released in August of 1962 on the Brent label, retitled There's the Devil in His Heart, as the B-side of a song called Bad Boy, both written by Richard B. Drapkin, who himself sang under the stage name of Ricky D. Neither release was a hit, and the Donnays never recorded again. It's not known where the Beatles heard this record, such was its obscurity. It was most likely George who discovered the tune, and it entered the Beatles' repertoire with the gender switched, and was recorded in 1963 with George on lead vocal. Paul and Glenn discussed the troublesome middle section again, which tried everyone's patience yesterday. the beginnings of an idea for that guitar and bass part. critics forget that his bandmates often ask him to play less and less drums. John wants to listen to the acetate of Across the Universe, so the issue with Don't Let Me Down is left unresolved. I'm very hungry again now. Yeah, I don't know. Oh, it's still not... love for the first time. Actually, uh, I must go. 
seen since I've been. Guess you don't put this out. Meanwhile, George complaining about the effect that getting up early is having on his body goes to answer the call of nature. I'll leave you to speculate on that one. There's a level of detail that even I won't go into. While waiting, John runs through Chuck Berry's 30 days. Thirty Days to Come Back Home is a 1955 chart hit by Chuck Berry. Much like Maybelline from the same year, it was written in the country idiom. In this case, inspired by the late Hank Williams. According to Berry's pianist and uncredited collaborator Johnny Johnson, it was written on the road at the same time as its B-side, Together We Will Always Be. I don't think it took more than an hour each one. It was recorded quickly in September of 1955 and released that same month where it reached number 8 in the R&B chart. A key line from the song, Can't Get No Satisfaction from the Judge, inspired Mick Jagger when looking for a lyric for a song based on a riff that Keith Richard had dreamed up, almost literally as the story goes. The riff sounds like John's part in his 1968 song Revolution. Glyn and Michael can be heard in the background stating, rushes will be viewed in half an hour. But John drowns them out with a rendition of Bebopalula, complete with authentic Cliff Gallop solo, which demonstrates who is playing this on the Star Club tapes.
Bebopalula is a song credited to Gene Vincent and his manager Bill Sheriff Tex Davis. Written in 1955 while Vincent was recovering from a motorcycle accident at a US Naval Hospital, Davis received credit only after buying the rights from the song's true co-author, Donald Graves. According to Graves, who wrote the lyric, it was inspired by the song Don't Bring Lulu, a Dixieland jazz song from 1925, which had endured into the 1950s and beyond. Vincent's own memory differed. He claimed it was based on the comic book Little Lulu, but this was possibly to avoid claims of plagiarism. The phrase Bebopalula has a much more interesting provenance, however. We've already discussed the phrase Hey Bobberebop, which was sung by John earlier today, and I attributed that to the Beach Boys and Mike Love. But the phrase has a long and fascinating history in jazz circles. So, if you'll indulge me, let's take a brief detour. Roy Muller tweeted me a link to a website called uncamarvy.com. That's U-N-C-A-M-A-R-V-Y. Which is a website for Marv Goldberg's Yesterday Memories Rhythm and Blues Party Show. Among Marvy's many brilliantly researched articles, you can, as I indeed did, get lost down the rabbit hole of nonsense vocalisations. Hey Barbary Bop was a jazz tune dating back to 1945, but its history goes back through American culture much further. The title, if not the tune, appears to have been inspired by Helen Hume's contemporary hit, Be Bubba at least in its title. The similarity didn't go unnoticed, and as a September 22nd edition of the Boys Idaho Statesman noted, It's a matter of several thousands of dollars now in a lawsuit. According to jazz pianist Jelly Roll Morton in a probably apocryphal tale, Bebobbelieber was a riff so old it's got whiskers. The terms bebop and rebop appeared as musical nonsense syllables in the 1920s. Anka Marvey cites the earliest example is Four or Five Times by McKinney's Cotton Pickers in 1928, which contains the refrain Bip-Bop-1, Bip-Bop-2. Washboard Sam's Don't Lao from 1936 has... We don't care what mama don't allow, we're gonna rebop anyhow. Even Glenn Miller would explore this world of nonsense with his recording of Wham Rebop Boom Bam in 1939. And of course, by the 1940s, bebop would refer to the style of jazz popularized by Dizzy Gillespie. Helen Humes was a vocalist with Count Basie's orchestra at the time that two of Basie's musicians, guitarist Eddie Durham and trumpeter Marion Joseph Taps Miller, composed Wham Rebop Boom Bam. The song is known to have been performed during Humes' stint with Basie, and as such was most likely her starting off point for composing Bebop Oliva, if indeed she did compose it. Tina Dixon, also an ex-Basie vocalist, cut her own version of the song before Humes's and claimed the writer's credit. Though her version was called e bob o bob Humes, however, had the hit and her follow-up, b bob o boogie cemented the view that it was her song. Whoever wrote it, the b bob o phrase caught the public imagination and many versions of the song began to appear. E Bobbelieber by Jim Wynn and his Bobbelebans is of note because Wynn also claimed to have written the tune. Ooh Ooh E Bobbelebob by Bull Moose Jackson and his orchestra. E Bobbelebob by Clark Barnett. E Bobbelebop by the Alibaba Trio and many more. 
Lionel Hampton's Hey Barbarie Bop, recorded in December of 1945, has no real connection with Humes' hit, barring the similar title, and both may have been inspired by slang parlance of the day, or Hampton was cashing in on the Bubba Lieber craze. Hampton's song was a smash hit, and was possibly heard by young John Lennon, hence his singing of the refrain in today's rehearsals. And perhaps this tune, or one of the many bubbly Bavarians, influenced Paul's 1971 nonsense tune, Bip Bop. Other artists in the rock and roll era were inspired by the bubbly refrain. Aside from Bebopalula, we have Chubby Checker's Hey Bob and Needle, the aforementioned Beach Boys Wonderful, and Captain Beefheart's Woe is a Me Bop. So despite the uncertain origins of the bubbly refrain, it had a very long-lasting influence on popular music, perhaps more than you might have imagined. Maybe it's due for a comeback. John then briefly tries Gene Vincent's Lot of Lovin', which Paul has already sang today. This mutates into Eddie Cochran's Something Else. Ringo struggles to find the beat, oddly, he doesn't seem to know it. Lotta Lovin' was a 1957 hit for Gene Vincent and performed with his backing band, The Blue Caps, featuring Johnny Meeks on guitar, who had replaced the pioneering Cliff Gallup. The song was written by Bernice Bedwell, who had played the song over the telephone to Vincent. He would also record the songs In My Dreams and Lonesome Boy by the same writer. Something Else was a co-write between Eddie Cochran, his brother Bob and girlfriend Sharon Sheely. Released in July of 1959, despite its aggressive sound, the intro reminiscent of Little Richard's Keeper Knockin', the song features just three performers, Cochrane himself on vocals and guitar, Gene Reggio on drums, and Don Myers on the electric bass. The song peaked at number 22 in the UK singles chart, so would have been very familiar to the young Beatles, apart from Ringo. <laughs> Tape cuts. John and Ringo jam, and someone close to the mic, possibly Paul, plays congas. Unless Jimmy Scott made an appearance today.
Paul starts another loose improvisation. George hasn't returned. The acetate of Across the Universe starts and John eagerly goes to listen to it. George can be heard in the background. John seems to be commenting that the record isn't that tinny. It could be someone suggests closing the lid on the record player to make it sound more bassy. The feed changes. George appears to be talking about a song by Dr. John, Gree Gree Gumbo Yaya. Gree Gree Gumbo Yaya is a track from the debut album of New Orleans artist Dr. John, released in January of 1968. Gree Gree is a style of music, a musical hybrid of New Orleans R&B and psychedelia. George may have become aware of the album during his recent US visit, since the album failed to chart in either the US or the UK. It takes too long before it does it. No, it does it, and there's about yeah. half a minute pause. Surprise. The part George doesn't like about Across the Universe is when the sound effect of flapping comes in at the end. John thinks it acts as a surprise. This sounds like John attempting to play Chuck Berry's School Day, along with a brief but garbled lyric. <laughs> School Days is another song by Chuck Berry, released as a single in March of 1957. It was recorded by the Chess Brothers that January and featured the Chess House Band again, Fred Below on drums, Willie Dixon bass, and in addition Howlin' Wolf's long-standing guitarist Hubert Sumlin, as well as pianist Johnny Johnson. The song peaked at number 5 in the Hot 100. Its Howl Howl rock and roll refrain is considered to be a rock and roll anthem. Oh. Uh... 
Paul suggests they do another song. An odd choice considering now would be a good time to run through across the universe. Paul calls for she came in through the bathroom window, presumably recalling the good feeling it left them with yesterday. He then suggests after this they go home. Then we'll go home. John plays a few bars of bathroom window before George leads them into a rendition of The Shadows' FBI, with John taking lead. When the Beatles returned from their first stint in Hamburg in 1960, leather-clad and studiously unkempt, they discovered that a whole musical craze had passed them by. Cliff Richard's backing band, who were originally called The Drifters, until a US vocal group of the same name threatened legal action and bass player Jet Harris thought up the new name The Shadows, had branched out on their own, making instrumental records with producer Nori Paramore. The first single, Apache, topped the charts in the UK for five weeks. Suddenly, every band in Liverpool, except the Beatles, had donned shiny suits and were moving in lockstep while playing instrumental hits. It's to the Beatles' great good fortune that they didn't succumb to this fad. FBI was a shadow single released in 1961, despite being written by the guitarists Hank Marvin, Bruce Welsh, as well as bass player Jet Harris. The song was credited to their manager Peter Gormley. It reached number six in the UK charts. Paul counts in. She came in through the bathroom window. George and John sing the same notes as harmony to Paul. The performance is again very solid. They like playing this one. George complains that he can't sing a higher harmony than John, so he's ended up singing the same note. He then illustrates this. the same one as John, so I can't sing the high one because it's too high. Paul is unsure whether to include the song as it's slow like the others. John thinks it's catchy though. Paul counts in another performance, but this halts as he and Ringo discuss when Ringo should come in. Paul plays the song faster, approaching the speed it will eventually have on Abbey Road. 
George says he prefers it slower. George discuss a pickup intro to the song. We get a brief blast of this, and then sadly, the last available tape of the day runs out. won't get to hear the Beatles and the crew's discussions as they prepare to leave this time and so January 7th 1969 abruptly ends on an anti-climax we don't have the benefit of those final minutes of the rehearsal to understand how the Beatles finished their day what was agreed? What was discussed? Did they resolve any issues? Was any progress made on she came in through the bathroom window? Did the Beatles stay to look at the rushes that Michael announced just before the tape ran out? Well, perhaps in season five, as we explore January the 8th, we'll be able to deduce something. But until then, we have to accept that there are some things we may never know. January 7th is a day of high highs and low lows. On one hand, we saw a band energised by the performance the previous day of Bathroom Window and then fired up by a composition that Paul made on the spot, Get Back. It's a day where they were inspired enough by Mal's lightning fast acquisition of an anvil to make real progress on Maxwell's Silver Hammer and enjoy themselves to boot. But on the other hand, a wounded George still ruminating on the disagreement with Paul on the 6th and by how the band had totally ignored his new composition, Hear Me Lord, appears to announce that he doesn't want to do the show. This leads to a lengthy discussion between the band and Michael, where George shifts his position to he doesn't want any of his songs in the live show, and in fact none are rehearsed today, and eventually suggests that they all get a divorce. This is easily the lowest point in the session so far, Adding to the negative aspects of the day's work is John's lack of motivation and lack of faith in his new material. Aside from the perfunctory performances of Don't Let Me Down and One After 909, John is unable to focus himself or his bandmates on any one of the remaining songs or song fragments that he has. He tries Case of the Blues, Across the Universe, Give Me Some Truth and Dig a Pony but fails to complete any of them thinking that they are all too slow or perhaps not good enough. 
There really doesn't appear to be a neat linear path from George's argument with Paul on the 6th to his walking out of the sessions on the 10th. George alternates between despondent during the conversations and enthusiastic, almost excited during the rehearsals. Perhaps he's performing for the camera a little, or as one of the Beatles podcasters noted, I'm sorry, I don't remember which one, performing music is a kind of solace from having to perform the role of Beatle as a public persona. After a day's work, only two songs have received any serious work. Maxwell's Silver Hammer now has a full arrangement, which will change in time, and Get Back is the beginning of a contender for the live show. We did have a production idea for the show from Paul suggesting Mal dress up as the Maxwell character. This set piece idea for each song will be explored more tomorrow when John and Yoko waltz their way through rehearsals of I Me Mine. Other than that, despite trying to press the band on the subject and opening up a whole can of worms he didn't expect, Michael fails to get any decisions on the staging of the live show. Glyn has had a more productive day, finally getting together from various sources some recording equipment. He has opted to record the rehearsals on a mono machine rather than use the 8-track recorder that's also available. This is probably more for speed as much as anything. Glyn is just sending a live mix direct to tape. You can hear him altering the levels of various instruments throughout the afternoon. Of course, the reason we can hear that is because the feed from Glynn's new recording booth is being routed through the Nagra machines for the film soundtrack. Glynn's mono recordings have not become publicly available. I've not been able to find any articles suggesting they were used for the Peter Jackson documentary soundtrack, but because of the rerouting of the sound from Glynn's desk to Peter Sutton's tape recorders, we know exactly what they would have sounded like. Glynn, much like Jeff Emmerich, has favoured close miking the instruments, which actually does a terrific job of removing all the ambient noise from the cavernous soundstage at Twickenham. To demonstrate the effect, here is my voice about an inch or so away from the mic. Here it is as I stand a few feet away. However, these first attempts seem to be going to tape at too high a level, causing some distortion that I initially thought was my fault when transferring the audio, so thanks Glynn. It'll be interesting to see if Glynn's tapes have any beneficial effect on the development of the songs now that the Beatles have the opportunity to hear themselves back. For Michael, today has delivered a few useful fragments of footage, notably the clips of Across the Universe, Digger Pony and Maxwell's Silver Hammer that appear in the Let It Be film. It is surprising that he missed the opportunity to include the moment Get Back was created. One would have thought that this would be the very epitome of the Picasso Paints concept that Paul had wanted. Overall, he has steered clear of pressing the band about the live show since this morning's discussion, as it seemed to open up a lot of old wounds with the members of the band. It'll be interesting to see how he approaches this tomorrow, if at all. George Martin only appeared this morning with the equipment and doesn't seem to have been on set in the afternoon, although George Harrison's open hostility can't have helped make him feel welcome. Mal has had a great day, sourcing an anvil at short notice and grinning like a Cheshire cat when asked to hit it which he also does when not required to later in the day. And of course, Ethan Russell makes his first appearance here today as photographer. His work will play a vital part in the Let It Be release when it eventually comes out. We've explored the moods of the various Beatles somewhat throughout this season. Today's discussions draw even more attention to the underlying problem with the project. Only one of the band has any enthusiasm for doing a live show. 
Paul had the idea, pitched it to the band and managed to convince them all to grudgingly attend. But John has more energy now for his relationship with Yoko and the projects that they could be doing together than he will be able to summon up for the Beatles from now until their breakup. George has all but given up on using the Beatles as a vehicle for his songs, which are among the best work he will ever produce, and so takes on the role of arranger for John when Paul doesn't want that job. Ringo, for the most part, just observes from behind the kit. He'll perform, but he won't travel, scuppering the only production idea that they've had. And Paul is increasingly finding himself in the role of authority figure, which the others feel obliged to rebel against. Despite the creation of Get Back in the Morning, January 7th can be seen as the first day that the project really lost momentum. For a whole day's rehearsal, very little work, barring Maxwell Silverhammer, saw any progress. But they do have workable versions of the following songs. I've Got a Feeling, Don't Let Me Down, One After 909, She Came In Through the Bathroom Window, Two of Us, Maxwell Silverhammer. Six songs that could be performed live, and only 11 days to go. As ever, we don't know what the Beatles did after rehearsal. They could have had another meeting like on the 6th or all returned home. John and Yoko to Kenwood, Paul to Cavendish Avenue and Linda and Heather, George to Kinforns and Charlotte, Ringo back to Sunny Heights, Maureen, Zach and Jason. In season 5 we'll find out what George watched on TV and what song he was inspired to write this night. But you'll have to wait until we return for that. We'll be back as soon as possible with January 8th, 1969. And that's it. If you want to support the show, you can leave a tip at buymeacoffee.com forward slash wadpod. That's W-O-D-P-O-D. You can also interact with me on the socials, Facebook and Instagram and Twitter, plus my Gmail, all titled Winter of Discontent Pod. Please like and subscribe and leave a review. It really helps other people find us. Thanks for listening and bye for now. Bye for now.